Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. My name is Dennis Schuler. I'm your host of Vendapunkt Inflection Points for Senior Leaders. I'm joined today uh, by James O'Reilly, Chief Executive Officer for Smoky Bones. Smoky Bones is a restaurant chain uh, throughout the uh, predominantly central and southeast part of the United States, specializing in barbecue. And uh, James has been with them since May of 2019. And prior to that, uh, he's amassed over 25 years of experience working in restaurant and consumer goods industries. Now, prior to joining Smoky Bones, he was the CEO for Long John Silvers. While at Long John Silvers, James led significant cultural improvements such that he was named Turnaround Man by the Louisville Courier Journal and earned three consecutive best places to work in Kentucky from the Kentucky Chamber of Commerce. James is at long stint at PepsiCo starting in the international division in Canada. He held marketing and research and development roles for young brands in the Caribbean, Latin America, and the United Kingdom, and then went on to become the chief marketing officer for KFC US and senior vice president of US marketing for young brands. James began his career in brand management at Procter & Gamble. He holds an undergraduate degree in biochemistry from McMaster University and an MBA from York University, both in Ontario, Canada. James has been at the helm of Smoky Bones, as I mentioned, for about two years and has brought much needed improvement to its operations and guest experience, invested in new technology methods to understand and delight customers, create greater brand awareness and menu differentiation, both critical to his success during the pandemic. Importantly, he's led a cultural renaissance within the business, which has proven vital to its business success during COVID. Now, I have to say, um, James is a one impressive executive. Um, I helped him uh, build his team um, down, in, down in Aventura, Florida. And what he and his team have done, especially during the pandemic, has been nothing short of miraculous. He's an extremely humble executive and very, very creative. And I hope you get the essence today in our in our webcast of, of an executive who uh, really is thoughtful about the organization and thoughtful about what innovation and changes in his organization need to be taken during COVID. Um, uh, since the pandemic has ebbed a bit, uh, his business has soared, it's taken off, and we're going to explore a little bit about how he's able to navigate uh, the depths of the pandemic when other uh, restaurant chains had a really tough go, and I'm not suggesting Smoky Pones didn't. But I am suggesting that with his leadership and that of his teams, they fared better than most and, and have come roaring out of the block since uh, things have begun to, quote, normalize. So enjoy the webcast. James, good seeing you. Welcome to Vendapunkt. James, first of all, again, thank you for joining me on Vendapunkt Inflection Points for Senior Leaders. And for the listening audience, uh, James is the CEO of Smoky Bones. I think you've been in charge since May of 2019. And yes. have done a fantastic job uh, building out this franchise, uh, in particular during the during the pandemic, uh, which is um, where I want to get to in a little bit. But before we go there, James, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? And um, I guess specifically, what in your background prepared you for operating a business during the most challenging period that a restaurant and retail industry has ever seen? Have you pondered that yourself? Like what prepared you for this? Or was it more, hey, I just get in and I, I put one foot in front of the other? Well, I never thought I would have to ponder it, Dennis. But um, as I think about it, two things in my background really stand out as it relates to 
especially with the company's experience in the last 18 months. The first would be my background as a professional chief marketing officer and the extreme focus that being a CMO places on the need for strategic clarity and strategic priorities because good companies like good brands really need to know, you know who they are and who they're not and what they should be doing and what they should not be doing, number one. And those are also the qualities of a good company, especially when things become extremely challenging. Being able to make those choices, lead those choices is extremely, extremely important. And I'd say the second thing is my entrepreneurial background uh, has always made me uh, really scrappy and given me a strong drive for results. And that's something our team's very focused on, which is you know, getting results and focusing on growth. Fantastic. And, and this and Smokey Bones is, I think I got it right, is your second CEO role having uh, led Long John Silvers. Uh, did you apply any skills from that from that gig to, you know, now that this is your second time around as a CEO? Um, what did you apply out of the Long John Silvers experience? What do you what did you what did you fine-tune as an executive? Sure. Well, the first thing would be um, at Long John Silvers being a franchise system um, and the 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 process of working with franchise um, groups and many diverse franchisees from across the country and getting aligned on, on growth strategies and growth priorities is something that takes an awful lot of care in franchise systems because there are so many voices. Uh, and, and spending you know, four years doing that made coming into Smoky Bones, which is a corporate uh, restaurant environment, something that I really needed to lean on when working with uh, my, you know, my team and my direct reports as we built uh, growth priorities for Smoky Bones. And the second thing would be the importance of culture. You know, Long John Silvers was named uh, a best place to work in Kentucky uh, four years in a row. And th th that's more a matter of, you know, people being uh, you know, proud of where they are, uh, believing that they can win where they are and feeling really great about where they are, you know, personally, professionally, and in their organization. And that for Smoky Bones, especially during the challenges of the pandemic has been crucially important. And we were just certified a great place to work as well, which is really great for the team and for the organization. And why, what is it in your background um, that shaped your philosophy? Because I noted, you know, you, you were the turnaround exec of the year by when you were up there in Louisville, um, down, down, downwind from where I am here in Cincinnati. And of course, you just mentioned you won the best places to work three or four consecutive years. And you've done the same now at, at Smoky Bones. Some executives never figured out. And frankly, some really don't care about the culture. It's more of, you know, just do as I say and get it done. What shaped your thinking um, early in your life or early in your professional career about culture and the importance of culture? Two of my professional experiences really stand out in terms of their influence on me and the importance of culture, Dennis, the first one was at Procter & Gamble and the importance that they place on, on leadership competencies and on values as an organization and just the commitment to excellence at P&G. And then the second one was my 13 years at Young Brands, which is a very values-driven company. Um, and, and seeing the power of commitment to excellence, seeing the power of values when a company doesn't just say those things, but it really believes in those things, really can show you the difference between companies that are truly culture-driven and versus the ones that really just pay lip service to the idea and companies that are culture-driven and have a common set of values and really believe in them and where the leaders walk the talk on those values, um, not only outperform the ones that do not, but they're also just more fun places to work. And that's important to me. 
Yeah, just as a sidebar, <clears throat> uh, going back to your P&G days, I think you just saw the announcement on uh, the CEO change with John Mueller. Um, just a just a sidebar. I'll trim this out of our uh, our video, but uh, I was with, I travel a lot with John, and talk about many dimensions of people in their life and how they lead and what they think about and what shapes them. We were in Hong Kong, um, and Susan Arnold was running the business. She was going to go off and do uh, some in home visits, and so we had an afternoon tour to go do what we wanted to do and. So we decided to go, uh, ask John, what do you want to do? And he said, let's go to Hollywood Road and we'll go shop the antique area. So we get in there and um, I had known John had worked in China, but I never knew he was fluent in Mandarin. So we get in and he starts, he starts talking in Mandarin. And then he starts correcting the, the owner of the store about, well, this actual antiquity piece is actually out of the Hun or Hunan or Huan dynasty. So I'm, I'm watching him for, this went on for like two, three hours. We're going to various shops and he was an authority on antiquities. So I get back to the hotel and I go, John, um, <clears throat> I'm, I'm kind of fagged. I'm going to, I'm going to stay in the bed and just read and listen to music. We had a beautiful room over the harbor and about 15 minutes later, he knocks on the door. And he gives me this coffee table size, um, pictorial book. Beautiful. Wow. All these Chinese antiquities, history of Chinese antiquities. And I start reading it, and in the cover jacket, it's John Moeller and his wife, Lisa Sauer, wrote the book. Whoa. This is the CFO of about a $50 billion business at the time. So I asked him in the morning, I said, John, what the hell? And he says, there's many different uh, flavors to me. You know, I t tend not to show it to people I don't trust because they think that they might, I might not be serious about the book and go write these books. But there's that layer of depth that I think high quality executives have about being an interest in the humans and humanity, and then translating that in terms of how they run their business and how they show up as leaders. Dennis, one of the um, metaphors that I've always really, really enjoyed um, is the kind of story of the, of the stone cutter mm -hmm. and, and the person who came upon the stone cutter, actually two stone cutters, one who seemed very happy with his work and one who did not. And he asked the first person, so tell me, um, you know, what are you doing here today? He said, I'm cutting stones. Same job. I do the same thing every single day. And he said, well, how do you like it? And he said, it's okay. You know, kind of boring. It's really hard. And then he asked the second person who seemed a little more happy. Tell me about your job. And he said, I'm building a cathedral. Uh, and, and I love my job. And what I'm doing is so important. And, and I know that's a simple, simple metaphor, but that's made a huge mm -hmm. impact on me. And, and obviously, the moral of that is everyone wants to build a cathedral and no, and no one wants to be cutting stones. And also in every organization, everyone is building a cathedral. We just all have our own, our own piece of it. And I really do believe that down in my core. Yeah, I think that's a good analogy, James, because I remember... Um I grew up in manufacturing my first eight, 10 years. And uh, I used to go into the plants. <clears throat> I used to go on third shift where the real, the real action is in terms of how people really feel about what they do. And I always go to the case back room on the end of the production line. And I'd ask, what do you do and why? And to your point, in a really crappy plant, what they'd be like, why are you asking me that dumb question? I'm watching bottles go in a box and then it's shipped off to someplace which I really don't rip, give a rip about. <clears throat> excuse me, in a high-performing plant, it's, hey, I'm the last point of defense between leaving our factory and the shelf for the consumer. 
this thing has to be right. And let me tell you why it has to be right. And they'll take you all the way up to what the broader ambition of the organization is. I always thought that's when you get that right and people can connect their work to the broader strategic aspects of work, um, which a lot of companies have a hard time doing, but the ones that do do it well, it's magic. Create high degrees of ownership. I, I totally agree. And high degrees of ownership, better, com more commitment to the organization itself and a better place to work, which, which engages everyone. Indeed. And, and I wanted to go a little bit further on that in terms of you as a CEO, because a lot of the, not a lot, but some of the CEOs I've interviewed complain about the bubble. Like they get elevated to the CEO role. They're in the proverbial corner office. Um, bad news doesn't travel very fast there. It's always good news. And then they get surprised that they live in this little bubble. Uh, how do you break free of that dynamic as a CEO? Because I, again, I, I witness you as, as being completely engaged throughout the organization, available to people. Uh, but how do you how do you leap past that barrier that some CEOs get, which is they get trapped in their office in that corner, and they really never get engaged in what's really happened to the organization until it's too late. Often. Well, first of all, I hate the bubble. Um, I don't want to live in a bubble, and um, there's really two things I, I hold myself to to make sure that that would never happen to me. One is I'm in constant contact uh, with my team and with the executives in the organization. And we've developed a kind of a first team mentality around what we do as a management team. And I challenge all the members of the management team to think of the executive team as their first team. Meaning when we work together, you don't come to a meeting representing your function. Um, we come together when we meet and we meet as a team. So we are a functioning team with our own goals as a team. We do go back to do our day jobs, myself included. I have obviously have a day job, but when we get together as, as executives, we're, we're the first team for each other and we, we, we owe that to each other. And I think that keeps the, the kind of accountability and the transparency with all of us and the trust running really, really high. And the second thing is staying, you know, very much in touch with the front line of the organization is, is very important. Um, so I commit myself to a, a week of travel each month out into restaurants. And I meet every single person in the restaurant. I sit down and have long conversations with the general managers and asking them questions about what's working, what's not working. And if they were me, what would they do different in the organization? And one of the great things about the restaurant, you know, business and like many businesses is when you are... Um, visiting with the people in the front line, um, you're always going to get the truth. So it's really important in a role like this to make sure that, that, that we're doing that so that we're always getting the unfiltered, unvarnished truth, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Great. Fantastic. And, uh, you know, that, that kind of describes my next question, which is how do, you, how do you really get a good feel for the current state uh, and stay in touch with that kind of a situation assessment? During COVID, how did you how how were you able to navigate that? Because things are pretty well closed, uh, travel is not permitted. We're doing Zoom calls, things like that. But there were a lot of barriers that were put in put in front of us as leaders in terms of how to engage and how to stay in touch with the organization. How'd you overcome some of that, James? One of the models I use when I'm working with my team to to kind of overcome. Um, these challenges, especially when we're in situations of extreme challenges and there are all kinds of pressures that feel like they're, they're coming on us nonstop, 
is for us as a group to always think about the fact that we have three key stakeholder groups as a management team. And those stakeholders are our guests or our customers, number one, our employees, number two, and our investors, number three. And when we think about not only how we prioritize the issues that we should be facing, but also how we put initiatives into place to address those issues, one of the things that we have found that works for us is that looking at things that way is needing to consider the needs of each of those stakeholder groups equally, and the solutions or the growth priorities need to satisfy the needs of each of those stakeholder groups equally. Um, and, and I found over the years, and we continue to find here, that anytime we consider an issue that disproportionately affects one of the three stakeholder groups or two, or we prior, try to prioritize an initiative which might otherwise disproportionately affect one of those stakeholder groups or two, but not all three, usually ends up taking us down the wrong path. Um, because the right issues and the right opportunities and the, and the right growth priorities are the ones that create value for our guests, they create value for our employees, and they create value for our investors. So we essentially see ourselves as a value creation team. And how do you, uh, that raises another question for me, James. How do you, how do you keep that tripod, that three-legged stool in motion and congruent <clears throat> because, again, a lot of businesses I've seen uh, prior to private equity um, were really slavish to the shareholder, the shareholder interest. We got to do this because of shareholder. And the really good companies, you know, they balance it like you do. Uh, but how do you how do you avoid that? Or how do you keep that that tripod in sync with each other, the, the three elements in sync? Well, keeping the tripod in sync is enabled by having uh, great investors and great owners that, that, that provide you with um, the, the runway, if you will, to think about the business that way. So Sun Capital is an example, is the kind of ownership group that really understands that placing importance on the needs of the employees, the needs of the guests, ultimately delivers value back to them as well as owners. And so that is important. Not all ownership groups are created equal. Yep. And I think finding a good one to be a part of, um, like Sun Capitals, is really critical. Um, within that, though, um, creating an environment or an atmosphere with the management team where everyone is encouraged, allowed, expected to ask questions, to challenge the thinking, to challenge ideas, to make sure that we get to the right place is really, really important. So one of the things that, that we say, Dennis, is, it doesn't matter who is right as long as we are right as a team because no one gets rewarded ultimately for being right uh, as long as the team finds the right answer. And so when we think about that model, and we've used that model explicitly, the customers, the employees, and the investors, um, and we invite ourselves and we challenge ourselves to ask those questions all the time and in a, in a very trusting way, and that usually gets us to a good place. Okay, great. And let me let me extend that a bit further because I, I know this up up close and personally that you had when you came in you had to you had to rebuild the entire leadership team apart from your cfo um what do you look for in leaders and how do you assess their fit both functionally and culturally because again you've got a you've got i think this very nice uh nicely built leadership team that are individually really strong but also they collectively work extremely well together how do you judge that how do you assess that how do you mold individuals into a into a lean, mean fighting team that you've got down there. 
two things I look for when I'm, when I'm building a team and when we built the Smoky Bones team. Um, one is people who have a track record. They know how to win and they have won. So they know what winning is like and they know how to do it. Um, and so it's important. It's uh, a little bit like building a sports team whose goal it is to win a championship. It's better to have people who have won championships, who have know how to score touchdowns, who know how to catch the ball, know how to call plays. And so when we're when building the Smoky Bones team, I wanted to make sure that we had a group of people who knew um, how to win. Uh, and a lot of them, all of them have come from companies uh, in, in winning positions with great track records. Um, the second piece of that is, is you know, how we win. Uh, and there's an old expression, which I like, which is getting results the right way, um, because there's lots of ways to get results. But the types of teams, which I believe can deliver the most sustainable, consistent performance, get results the right way, meaning long-term sustainable results uh, with a people and culture focus uh, can deliver results more sustainably versus, versus teams which put too much priority on one of their stakeholder groups versus another and, and possibly even sacrifice the needs of one or the other. Those types of results um, and those types of teams usually cannot deliver results sustainably. And so we want to build a team that can deliver results the right way. And that's uh, really, really important. And uh, that leads me to my next question, James, if I could. Um, listen, one of the things I, I admire you for a lot of different reasons. Um, but the one I admire most about you and your team have this ability to see around the corner, see what's coming at us. You're extremely innovative and creative. And I'm just curious uh, how you do that. Um, and I, I know some of it's innate in people. Sometimes it's a product of just good management systems, but it's also there's a component of leadership that underpins that. Uh, and you guys were able to really jump into the middle of COVID and kind of see around the corner and anticipate, start to address where the consumer was going. How did you do that? There's two parts to that, Dennis, um, for me and for our organization. The first one is, you know, building a team that has won before and knows how to win means that you're bringing on people who have a lot of reps, if you will, in certain situations. Now, granted, COVID was a very, very unique situation, but when you have folks that have done things multiple, multiple times over the years and have that extra experience, it's worth making that heavy investment uh, in, in having a very high caliber team. Uh, and I remember when we talked about that at the very beginning, we talked about the type of team we wanted to build at Smoky Bones. We agreed we wanted a very tenured team that had that much more experience and could see around a few more corners than others. The second part of it, though, is a little bit different, and I'm a firm believer in what I would call decentralized accountability. And when people really, really feel accountable and they really feel uh, your trust and the benefit of your trust in them as individual leaders, they tend to spend a lot more time thinking proactively about their initiatives and their priorities than possibly people in other situations where they feel like they're either waiting to do uh, what they've been told to do, or they're being micromanaged or something like that. When people find themselves in situations where they're being micromanaged or they don't feel too accountable, even senior leaders, they tend not to spend as much time looking around corners as they do just waiting for the next directive to come down to them. But we are, we are a team with decentralized authority and accountability. So all the leaders uh, on the Smoky Bones management team know that they're accountable for their functions, for their initiatives, and that puts them in a position where 
it's really up to them to look around these corners and find these solutions, anticipate these issues. Uh, and that is a benefit to the whole team. That's great. Uh, and let's, let's jump into your business just for a minute. Um, you know, you're one of the businesses that actually, you know, you went through your, the typical B um, that a lot of, a lot of businesses went through when the States started to close things down, but you recovered pretty quickly and you actually grew through the pandemic and actually opened up some additional, uh, stores and you develop these concepts of ghost kitchens and just tell the us as the listeners a little bit about that and what the role they're playing on an ongoing basis when we built our strategic plan from the very beginning we put a huge um, premium on the off-premise part of our business from the very beginning because we knew that off-premise could be a major growth driver in casual dining that turned out to be very beneficial to the company during the COVID pandemic when for the restaurant industry, when dining rooms closed um, and all restaurant companies had to lean on was their off-premise business. In some cases in the industry, those companies had to start those businesses up from ground zero. We were already off and running with our off-premise business. And so that's one of the things that helped accelerate Smoky Bones recovery during the pandemic where we led most casual dining chains and comp sales performance out of the pandemic. Now, ghost kitchens and virtual brands are an outcropping of that strategy, of the, of the off-premise strategy, because a ghost kitchen is essentially a smoky bones location with no dining room that only provides um, our menu to off-premise guests um, through delivery fulfillment providers. And so we view ghost kitchens as an on-strategy part of how we're growing our business. Uh, we're operating a few of them right now, and it's a really exciting part of our strategy. And tell me about your, um, you've created a couple uh, concepts, both for a burger and wings that are targeted to the pickup and takeaway or take home uh, customer. And they appear to, to be here to stay. They, they're doing both very well. How did you come up with this idea and how do you execute those within the traditional framework of the restaurant? We were actually one of the first restaurant companies to launch virtual brands in partnership with Uber Eats and DoorDash. Um, the virtual brands were created out of um, the opportunity to, to look at unmet customer needs on these um, third-party platforms. And so what we found in partnership with the third-party providers, Uber Eats and DoorDash specifically, where in certain menu categories where they didn't feel they were competitive enough with enough offerings such as wings and burgers, which were especially, especially high volume during the pandemic. Um, in, our, in our discussions with them, we discovered that they wanted um, to have more offerings for their guests on their platforms. And so the virtual brands were created in such a way that we could showcase aspects of our menu that we might not be as well known for at Smoky Bones, uh, such as burgers and wings. We're primarily known for ribs and steaks and barbecue and things like that. But we have amazing wings and we have amazing burgers uh, and that yet those might not be the products consumers think about us uh, on the top of their minds. Yeah. But what virtual brands give us the opportunity to do is showcase these aspects of our menu uh, as dedicated brand propositions living quite independently on the third-party platforms. And so we launched the burger experience and the wing experience as dedicated virtual brands with their own positionings, their own menus, uh, and that we had, they have met with uh, very encouraging results on these platforms, so much so that we've built 
our own online e-commerce platforms for each of them. And we're now marketing them independently as brands. Yeah, I intend to sample both those next week. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. Um, listen, I, I also note um, that, uh, you know, when I drive in any city now, you see the same thing. One of the more immediate pandemic issues is, is concerning all these help wanted signs that are in indoors, uh, restaurant, retail, I see a lot of them, gas stations, um, et cetera. And I was talking to one of my friends yesterday who's a restaurant owner in Hawaii. And he put it crassly, crappy companies are now reaping the bitter crop that they sowed over the years, uh, which I think is his way of saying, listen, if you manage your workforce in a really dispiriting way, you're not reaping the, the quote rewards of that uh, insanity where people don't have the same degree of affiliation with the company, nor do they want to go work for kind of a, a crappy, crappy company. Uh, you've done quite the opposite there, obviously, and materially improved both the, from a strategic standpoint and operational, but also a cultural standpoint. Um, but kind of going forward, how do you counteract that trend? Because uh, I think millennials um, are have a higher bar or if not a higher bar, they have less tolerance for bad management, not feeling included, not being responsible. I mean, one of the things I posted last week in my little LinkedIn account was I was watching Aaron Rodgers, who I'm not a big fan of because he's a Green Bay Packer, but he talked very eloquently at a professional level about, hey, I, this is not about money. It's, it's I didn't feel like I was respected, didn't feel like I was involved, didn't feel like they were taking advantage of the whole me, Just I was just a player in their eyes. And it kind of annoyed me. Uh, so I'm voting my feet and I might go play some someplace. So I think millennials are more apt to do that. So there's a question here <laughs> I'm coming to. But how do you how do you counteract the trend of if you're going into a company and you've had some pretty bad track records uh, with employee relations, for example, and you have a lot of help wanted signs in your business, how do you how do you get in front of that where Young people say, if it doesn't feel good, I don't feel like I'm going to be included. It doesn't speak to me. I'm not going to work there and I'm not going to stay there. It's a long-winded question, long-winded wind-up. I apologize for that. That's okay, Dennis. The first thing that comes to mind when you ask me that question is I think back to when the pandemic first struck and things, the business started to really, really get rocked um, by all the closures of the dining rooms. Uh, and it was suggested, you know, to me very early on um, that, well, we need to have you make a video and send out a video communication to the field and start talking about what we're doing. And to be totally honest with you, that felt so, so, so wrong in terms of what our culture uh, is about and what we were aspiring for it to be. Uh, and our thought process was we need to get on camera. Uh, as leaders in front of all of our constituents and be completely transparent. We need to do it a lot. Uh, and it doesn't matter how hard the questions are. We need to answer every single one and we need to stay on the screen on that call until every single question has been answered, regardless of how uncomfortable uh, those questions might be. And we just went into this process um, this way um, with this very strong belief that this was really the only way for the front line of the organization to, to believe and to trust that the entire organization is with them, that is hearing them, um, and that when we can, we're acting on their concerns that we're, that we're meeting and addressing their needs. And so 
I still remember that very first call. We were all nervous. We were all, um, you know, quite, um, you know, nervous and somewhat shell-shocked by what was going on in the industry. Um, and we started getting into these conversations. The leaders of the restaurants started asking at the time very challenging questions. The things that were happening to them were deeply personal. Uh, and we just an answered them, you know, with the best that we could. When we had the answers, we gave them. When we said, you know, we really don't know, um, but we're working on it. We did that too. That has become a part of our discipline as a company, a part of our cadence now. We still meet to this day, a year and a half later, every single week on the town hall with every single one of our managers, which is uh, well over 100 managers every week for an hour. And we invest that time in that process. And what we've learned over that year and a half and why we continue to do it is that they trust us, that they, that they know we're listening. And when we, when we can answer their questions and, and address their concerns, we do. And when we can't do that, we tell them we can't and we're honest about why. And that has built a real culture uh, of trust in the organization. And I think to the younger employees, the millennials, the Gen Y, the Gen Z, that's something that not every company uh, is doing. Yeah. Yeah. It's the, it's the authenticity, uh, authenticity of, um, I'll get the word, uh, authentic leadership that people bring uh, and being in touch um, and people can smell it when it's not, right? Uh, if it's just people yeah. just going through the motion, it's going to check the box. I mean, one of your sister portfolio companies, uh, Windsor on the West Coast, Leon and Ike Sicaria, they're so much like you. They have, you know, if I could put you side by side, you guys would be finishing each other's sentences. Mm. And the two businesses that have come out of the gates the fastest post the pandemic is both your business and theirs. And there's a common intersection point, which is, you guys give a rip about the front-facing organization and you put your time and energy and effort against that. They happen to call their, they do monthly meetings with all their employees in a very personal way. They call it an oasis meeting because typically their store is an oasis within a pretty dispiriting mall. And so they took that concept of the oasis in a mall to, hey, this is the safe place for you to come once a month, our oasis as an employee base, to talk about anything that you want to talk about that will make you feel connected, more connected, make you feel better about the work experience here at Windsor. So the parallels here are very, very, very interesting. I think correlate very nicely with why you guys have kind of zoomed out both of your businesses and led the pack post-pandemic on business results. Good for you. That's great to hear. I mean, our, our philosophy is, um, this was written, I'm sure, in, in one of the books, um, is this idea of the inverted pyramid. And, and yes. we will tell our leaders that they that the restaurant general manager and the managers are the most important leaders in the organization, that they are at the top of the pyramid, that the management team and the employees in the restaurant support center are below them in the pyramid, and that our, that our role is, is their success uh, and setting them up for success. And it's one thing to say that. It's obviously another thing to do that uh, and, and to hold ourselves accountable to really making decisions consistent with that week in and week out. Yeah, indeed. And just broad, just a little bit broader, um, you know, things that are here to stay because of the pandemic. What, what changes do you see that many would think are temporary, but actually now we're going to be more permanent post-pandemic around how consumers interact with brands? Uh, how companies interact with consumers, how we interact with, with our employee base. Uh, there's a lot of big macro changes that are, have blown through the organizations. 
because of COVID. Some will stay, some will not. I'm just curious what your view is on those macro trends that are likely to stay in terms of management practice, leadership practice, employee relations, uh, consumer um, post-pandemic, whenever that might be. <laughs> yeah, well, on the consumer side, the first thing that comes to my mind is that consumers view um, activities that they do out of the home, such as eating in restaurants, a little bit differently than they did before the pandemic. And I think they always will. Uh, it's a little bit somewhat similar to the way consumers' views of transportation have changed over the years and how different transportation, especially air transportation, is today than it was 10 or 15 years ago or 20 years ago. But in the restaurant industry and other industries where consumers are leaving their homes and they're going out and doing things like eating in restaurants, going to movies, going to sporting events or concerts, consumers view those things differently now than they did before. They're not quite as carefree about doing them. There's a little more consideration that goes into doing those things. And when they do them, there's a, gr there's a greater feeling of, of satisfaction and joy because they feel like it's more special than they did before. Um, in visiting restaurants for consumers before the pandemic was somewhat more routine. And now it is somewhat less routine, a little more special. On the business side of things, we happen to notice that consumers are spending more when they do visit, which is very consistent with that view. They're having, adding more drinks, more desserts, more appetizers, because going out now is more of a special occasion. And the second thing that, that we've observed and I've observed that's, I believe, a structural change is this decentralized way that work is being done in organizations. I mean, there's just no debating the fact that organizations have had to find ways to be effective while being almost completely decentralized in terms of the way they work together. Um, for, and it was a dramatic shift, obviously, from working together in one office to a very, very dispersed team all across the country, uh, and even some in, in the same city, but all working from home. Mm -hmm. And it would, be, it would be crazy, if not hypocritical, to suggest that all of a sudden our people all have to come back to the office uh, at any given point in time in order for us to be effective, because that would, that would just be totally inconsistent with what we've actually experienced. And so... We're finding new ways to be successful as a hybrid organization, and we will, we will never really return to the way we were working together before, but that's totally okay. Yeah, I, I was always, I was just telling somebody earlier this morning that the place you wouldn't want to be is holding a lot of commercial real estate. They used to hold offices because people aren't going to come back and, and, and reset to what it used to be pre-pandemic. We've learned different ways how to interact. But I'm just curious, given your knowledge and given your experience around uh, driving <clears throat> and encourage kind of a tight-knit culture. In a hybrid organization, we have a large proportion of your employees off-site, if you will, quote-unquote, working from home. How do you establish that glue that keeps organizations bound together? That happened, obviously, most naturally in a physical setting. We can see each other, we can touch each other, we can build relationships. How do you navigate that dynamic, James? A couple of things come to mind. The first one is, uh, having a lot of clarity and alignment around what we're doing as a team and why we're doing it. Um, and as, an, as a restaurant support center team, uh, our mission is the, is the success of the restaurants and the restaurant leadership at each and every restaurant. And so that unites the restaurant support center team is knowing that its priority day in and day out is ensuring that the restaurants are set up for success. The second one that comes to mind is 
continually reinforcing our values as an organization. Um, and we've gone to extra lengths to, to talk about our values to, I'll just show you, we have a little card with our, with our values. And we use this as the basis of a rec recognition program that we are, we're encouraging and actively role modeling, you know, frequent recognition across the organization at the restaurant level uh, with each other to reinforce um, the values of the organization because the values are really holding the organization together as well. Um, and that, that's especially important with the millennial employees, the Gen Y and Gen Z employees as well. Uh, and then finally, constant communication um, as a team where we are reinforcing how the business is performing, what's going well, what the challenges are, what we're doing about them, and also providing an environment for our own employees um, who are not in the restaurants to ask whatever questions that are on their mind as well. And for us as a team to answer them, you know, transparently, honestly, so that we can build that sense um, of esprit de corps with, with our, that group as well. And we do that very frequently. And just to extend that a little bit further, James, if I could, um, what's the role do you think business should be playing in helping solve some of societal issues, whether it's environmental, uh, you know, waste reduction, climate change, or whether it's diversity, equality, inclusion, where should a business sit within that dimension? Because again, I'm, you know, it doesn't take any dummy to figure out that younger people are much more vocal and expect much more of their organizations that they're either working with or intend to join. I mean, I don't know about you, but when I joined uh, P&G, you know, a long, long time ago, I, I don't think I asked the question, what's your, what's your stance at ESG? Or what's your stance on diversity? You just didn't ask those questions yet. In the interview process, now more often than not, people want to know, hey, where do you stand on this particular issue? What are you doing about that? What's the role? How do you how do you navigate that as a CEO? That can obviously be very challenging to navigate, especially with the amount of of, um, of discord in in culture over the last um, you know eighteen months, two years, uh, and and how and how crazy it has been. Um, our lens as a company, when we think about how we engage on ver various kind of issues, societal issues, um, is to lean on our values and, and, and ask ourselves when we're, when we're having a discussion about a certain issue, whether that be ESG or DEI or something like that, is you know, when we think about our values, what make us special as an organization, um, wh where does that take us on a specific issue? Uh, and, and looking at it that way as an organization, what it, what, it, what it keeps us from doing, and I think it should keep us from doing, is taking too sharply pointed either political positions on things or too sharply pointed positions on specific issues when we need to always remember that we're a hospitality company. What we specialize in is, is, is building great teams, nurturing leaders, taking care of customers, that's really what brings all of us together as an organization. Um, you know, we're not politicians. Not many of us are macroeconomists or doctors or anything like that. And so we, for us to want to take, you know, sharply pointed positions on a lot of these issues can be problematic. But on the other hand, we need to be good corporate citizens. We need to be aware of what's going on in the world and be able to be good corporate citizens in that context and also be able to engage with our employees on some very, very real issues when they do present themselves. And so in going back to that, we really rest on our values as our, as our kind of stake in the ground. And one of our most important um, values as an example of that, Dennis, is called Be Yourself. I know I keep holding this yeah. card up. Mm -hmm. 
be yourself and celebrating individuality is, is really important, especially in the climate, um, society climate, you know, today. And so when we talk about and engage on various issues, you know, we encourage our employees to be themselves and that's okay to be yourself. It's okay to express your true self. And, and we want to celebrate that. We want to recognize that. Yeah. Good for you. Um, last couple of questions, if I could, uh, James, I want to be respectful of your time. Um, when, again, you, you've worked across a variety of organizations, high quality organizations, and you built, you, you built businesses off of, off of, um, or inherited some underperforming businesses and then made them really top performers. When you look back over your career and you look through the, the lens of who you've had work for you or leaders in general, what separates the good leader from the not so good leader? What's the differentiation there? We had this conversation recently uh, as a management team and we asked each other, you know, who are the leaders that you have had, the coaches that you have had that, that had the greatest impact on you? Uh, and the common theme that emerged was it wasn't always the coach that we, that we loved the most, that we thought would be necessarily our best friend, but it was always the person who had the highest standards and was the most fair to us uh, and really challenged us and made us feel uncomfortable when we needed to be made um, to feel uncomfortable. Yeah. And so the leaders over the years that have made the biggest difference on me were the ones, they weren't, they weren't always the ones who I might have otherwise been the best of friends with, but they were the ones that treated me fairly and challenged me to grow outside my comfort zone and, and, to, and to kind of raise my own expectations for myself um, and, and to challenge myself to go further. Uh, even when I maybe didn't have, wasn't in my comfort zone, I didn't realize that I could take that next step or whatever. Uh, and so that's something that I try to put into practice as well, you know, day in and day out, um, which is, you know, seeing the potential in all the people that I work with, the folks on my team and encouraging them to do the same thing. And then, and then in a way, challenging them to be more and do more than they even thought that they could, even when that makes them feel uncomfortable. And as long as they trust uh, you as a leader and they trust your intentions um, and that they, that they feel like they're in a, in a trusting environment where they're allowed to fail or allowed to make mistakes, which, which is critical, um, then, then people really grow and they want to grow with you. Yeah, I'm just thinking as you're talking, uh, I'm going back to college for a minute. I can't remember many of my professors, but I do remember the ones that were really hard. I mean, really set the bar high. Uh, I remember this one professor in grad school says, no one's ever got an A ever in my class. And I've, I've been teaching for 26 years and I go, okay, this is going to be my, my chance to prove them wrong. Um, and then my first boss, uh, when I came out of uh, grad school, he used, to, he used to sit down with a straight edge and he'd take a memo and he would cut it up in little sections with a glue stick in front of me. And he would redo it and he'd say, bring it back again, bring it back again, probably eight or nine different times going through this process. And he was really a stickler on how to write, how to get what's in your head down on a piece of paper so it's convincing. And it cost me to be, I think, a pretty decent writer now today. But those were experiences where you had the bar set so high, whether it's academia or in my case, first boss. Um, where you just naturally are kind of gravitate towards those people, I think, over time. And you actually, actually I, I think if people ask me about myself, they probably say, he's a pretty tough guy, but he's fair. Uh, at the end of the day, he made me better. I think that's what we all want as a leader, to have people recount that, I think. 
Yeah, I would say to other leaders, you know, give the gift of high expectations. Yes, indeed, which is the last question on uh, young people. Um, the work world can be pretty scary at the moment. Um, it's always been, I think, scary for young folks when they come into organizations. I mean, I, I know I was petrified for my first six, nine months working, working at P&G. Um, and, but many young people are questioning what they really want to do. Um, and I, I spent a lot of time on campuses. And you get these 21, 22-year-olds kind of almost neurotic. Like, I don't know what I want to do. Is that bad? And it's like, no, actually, that's good. Because how would you know? You don't have the experience base. But do you, have, do you have any sage advice for young folks that are watching this about uh, how they think about their careers, how they develop themselves, uh, that you've seen uh, work that you would commend to them? Sure. When I think about my own experience and then having three kids in their 20s, you know, going through college and moving into the workforce, um, a kind of framework that I've developed over the years, somewhat out of necessity, but also just uh, in advising them and also coaching young people in the early parts of their career is to really take stock of yourself in three ways. Um, the first way is, what are the things that you really enjoy doing? Second thing is, what are the things you're really good at doing? And the third thing is, what are the things that you can monetize doing? Hmm. Um, and, I, and I found um, as a coach, uh, as an executive, and even as a parent, that 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 actually is a challenging exercise for people to go through. They often want to want to settle for things that satisfy two of those three criteria. But I've also found over the years with my own kids and with other young, young professionals that if we're not honest with ourselves about the need to satisfy all three of those criteria, that we can ultimately be disappointed. So I'll give you an example. Um, I'm an amateur bass player, but I've been playing bass for... For, since I was 16 years old, which is a very long time. It's something that I enjoy doing, and it's something that I'm pretty good at doing. But the number of bass players that can really support themselves and a family uh, from, a mon from a monetary standpoint is extremely small. That universe of people is very small. So I knew that could not be a career for me. Uh, and sometimes I find um, young folks, um, and I find this, you know, especially in their early years in college, and even one of my own kids said to me one time, oh, dad, you know, it doesn't matter what it pays as long as I like it. And as long as I'm good at it, that'll be enough for me. Um, and, and they learn either through experience, through making mistakes, um, that it's important to try to satisfy all three of those things. And the same would go for something that you really, really enjoy doing and you think you could make money at it. But if you're not good at it, you ultimately can't be successful. And likewise, something you might be good at that you can make money at. If you don't like it, it ultimately can't and probably won't be a long-term path for you. So that's a little framework that I've developed, uh, you know, great. pragmatically as a parent over the years that I uh, found useful. That's a great framework. Um, any uh, last, 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 last question, just to build off that last point on feedback. Um, you know, young people, any organizations, they're coming, most are coming out of college where they've gotten, they know the deal. You go through, you get your final grade, you know how to test ABC. You know what the rules of the road are, if you will. They enter in the business a little opaque in terms of how am I doing? And sometimes they get surprised and therefore it becomes a crippling event. Do you have some advice again for, for young people about how they enter into organizations, how they ask for feedback and how they manage that feedback? along the way in their first, you know, typically 18, 24 months of employment. 
when I think about feedback, especially as it relates to um, being early in your career or, or almost any point in your career, is two things come to mind. The first one is, is to be comfortable with feedback and to, and to actively solicit feedback. And, and that's harder to do than it sounds, obviously, for all of us, because we, all of us are human natures. We might not want to hear something told to us that makes us feel uncomfortable. Uh, on the other hand, there's something which is obviously way worse than that, and that is not hearing feedback that we might have not wanted to hear, uh, only to learn at some point later that we are not meeting the expectations of our coach or of our company. Um, and in any good organization, that feedback should be given and received in such a way that it's, it's helping you to course correct yourself as a leader um, so that you can move along towards your own career objectives, whatever they are. And that would be the second piece of feedback that, that I uh, often remind people of is, is think about feedback as an important part of your progression towards whatever your next natural point in your career might be and ask for the feedback in that context. Meaning, if I'm working with my coach, I could say, well, give me my feedback based on the expectations of the position that I'm in. Or I could say, I'd like you to give me feedback based on what your expect expectations might be if I was a level up in the company so that I can understand um, how to grow myself. And so I might end up getting feedback that says, you know, in your current role, you're meeting my expectations. But if you, as let's say as a director, but if you were a VP right now, you would not be meeting my expectations and here's why. Uh, and I think understanding that difference as a feedback recipient really helps you to calibrate where you are in an organization and, and the things you need to do in the minds of your company and of your coach to really grow and develop. So I would actively solicit feedback. I'd be looking for it uh, you know, uh, regularly, uh, and I would treat it as a self-development, self-improvement um, tool of the, of the highest importance. I think that's fantastic advice. And I like your thinking about putting some stretch in the feedback, um, you know, with an eye towards what do I want to be able to do and be successful at the next level while you're in the current level. It's kind of plan your way forward through the feedback process. That's that's great advice. Well, James, listen, I um, I really appreciate you spending time with me today. I have a new vision for you, uh, and that okay. is uh, Bono's sidekick at U2 with Adam Clayton, you know, stringing along. Or, or I was just watching Metallica Metallica's uh, concert the other night, and the guy that plays bass, is one interesting dude. So I got that. I don't know if, what music genre, genre you're interested in, but I have a new vision now for you, James. <laughs> That's great, Dennis. Thank you. Hey, uh, again, uh, great, great to see you again, James. Wish you all the best. you got a great distance down there. Fantastic leadership team. Kudos to you and your team for what you've been doing. I uh, couldn't be prouder of you guys. And um, thank you again. Thank you, Dennis. Appreciate it. Okay. Be well, my friend. Thank you. You too, Dennis. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.